but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, welcome back to the Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. I'm James. We have brand new designs for the Body Serve. We do. We are so excited to unveil this new header. We've got a new header on the website, on Twitter, a new logo, all courtesy of an illustrator named Tom Humberstone, a fantastically talented guy, and we are just so happy with the designs. So head on over to our various social media, check it out, let us know what you think. You can hit up Tom on Twitter at Tom Humberstone. If you need some great designs, some beautiful designs, then please do get in touch with Tom. There isn't much time for preamble here because we're actually delayed in recording. We were about to record and then the lucky losers and the qualifiers were placed into the US Open draw and that just sent everything awry for a few minutes. Well, there were a few shockers. The big one was that Felix Auger-Aliassime has been placed to face Denis Shapovalov, his doubles partner in the 2015 tournament in which they won the boys' doubles title here at the U.S. Open. Felix himself is a past winner of the boys' title here, and they're best friends. And this is just... It sucks for Canadian fans. All those things you just said are like neither here nor there to what the matter at hand is. (laughs) Felix is no longer a junior. This is his big come-out moment, potentially. It's his first Grand Slam main draw. It just sucks that he has to play Dennis right away. Yeah. We'll get to that in a bit. Which draw do you want to start with first? Let's start with the women. First quarter, rip the mandate right off because this is wild from the get-go. Now, you described the draws as good, bad, and tragic. How would you describe this quarter of the draw? I almost resent how easy a setup that was (laughs) because everybody done know at this point that it's beyond tragic. It is, yeah. That section, that quarter, whatever. Venus has to play Kuznetsova in the first round. And if she gets through that, potentially has to play Serena in the third round. And then the winner of that match plays likely Simona in the fourth round. So... Venus with her bandages all over the place. You know, she Mm. has everything imaginable wrong with her right now. Beat the elbow, the knee, the leg. We don't even know what shape she's going to be in when she turns up to play. Right. She has to get through Svetlana. If you're looking to Serena to have a big run at this US Open, she then has to get through maybe her sister and then Simona in the fourth round before progressing to even the quarterfinals. Right, where she could face Muguruza or Pliskova, who beat her here in 2016 in the semifinals. So let's start with Simona. Simona has a pretty predictable run to the fourth round. You know, Pavlyuchenkova is the seed she would face in round three, who's the 27 seed. She's seeded to face Serena Williams in the fourth round. Bad draw for both, obviously. Between Venus and Svetlana... I don't want to make any predictions, obviously, but Svetlana just won the Washington, D.C. title a few weeks ago. She's resurgent once again, one of her 
thousand comebacks at this point, and she's here on a wild card. We've also got whoever wins that could face Camila Georgie, which is no easy out in the second round of a major. Uh, I mean, at this point, I feel like it's nostalgia for what her game can be than for what it really is at this point. <laughs> okay. She's burned out and flamed out far more than she's put anything together. Right. I, she typically doesn't sustain it for a full two sets. She played Serena very tight at Wimbledon over three sets. I think if Venus gets through, playing a big hitter like Camila is not a really bad thing. I think what would be really bad is playing someone like Carlos Juarez Navarro right after getting through the first round, right? Yeah, I don't really want to focus on the Venus thing right now. It's oh, okay. all too upsetting. We're just going to brush right past that. Then we have Muguruza. I don't think anyone knows what exactly is going on with her. She came to Cincinnati. I don't think she was healthy at all. Lost early. Karolina Pliskova is now teamed up with Conchita Martinez, who... Um, I remarked yesterday, it seems like a big missed opportunity for Muguruza that she didn't take on Conchita as a a more long-term coach. Now, maybe at the time that wasn't really an option for either of them, but it seemed like she she got some mojo working whenever Conchita was in her box. She's got a contract with Sam Sumik. We don't know what that contract is. Right. You'll hear later in the episode from David Taylor, it's our audio from Cincinnati. We had a one-on-one with him. You'll hear more about some of the the intricacies of player-coach contracts. But, I mean, before either of those women even get to round four, Muguruza could face Barty, uh, Pliskova could face Maria Sakari, who we saw take out Naomi Osaka in Cincinnati. Sakari has had an amazing year, is rising steadily, and she can hit with anyone. She even out-hit Naomi for a lot of that match. So, th- I mean, this is the, the quarter of death here. It's totally unpredictable. I think it's very possible that the champion comes from here, but I don't know who it is. It's exactly the type of draw where you have somebody on the bottom half like Wozniacki to just bide her way through to a title like she did in Australia. (laughs) I don't know if that's exactly what happened in Australia. My point in saying that is it's too tempting to look at the draw with all the the landmines Mm -hmm. and say, well, somebody has to come through here. It's often the case where they burn each other out. Right. And then by the time it gets to the the back end of the tournament, the ones who have less wear and tear on their legs are the ones who are more equipped to handle championship weekend. That is very true. And this year we have seen basically counterpunchers win each of the first three slams. They're not the massive hitters. Even Sloane Stevens winning the final slam of last year possesses a lot of power, but played most of the tournament as a counterpuncher. So is this the game that is ruling women's tennis these days, and is it going to continue? In Sloane's quarter down here, you know, she didn't get a a bad draw at all. There's that it's tempting to put Azarenka in the third round against Sloane. I'm not sure that Vika is there. Like, I don't don't really want to predict anything for her right now. She hasn't been there much of the summer, so it's difficult, in spite of her pedigree, Mm -hmm. to expect a whole lot from her. We just don't know where she is in her comeback this stage of her comeback right the match in sloan's half or quarter that i'm really looking forward to happening again is her playing elise mertens like she did in cincinnati (laughs) because that was wild yes elise won that match and if you were watching that match on tv you were treated to quite the coaching timeout with sloan and kamau uh yeah 
I mean, Sloan just unloaded on her coach, Kamal Murray. She was complaining about the pushing, this girl running her around like crazy. She was just not happy with that match at all. No, and, and then something to the effect of, and then when she decides to, she wants to win a point, she just screams really loud <laughs> and thinks that's going to make it happen or something like that. It was a... Uh, yeah. It was fascinating to see Sloane in that moment not have the self-awareness of what it's like to play herself. I know, right? Not to say that Sloane is a pusher, but somebody who can wear you down with that incredible defense and then kind of unload with some offense. Elise Mertens doesn't have that kind of offense that Sloane does, but, I mean, even watching someone play Sloane is frustrating. But it was confirmation of what Brianna for the tennis has said to us in the past that while Sloane has all this power, it's clearly something that she doesn't enjoy, let's say, partaking in on the tennis court. You know, she'd much Mm -hmm. rather be the person absorbing the ball, redirecting and running you ragged than having to take initiative within the match. Right. And if that's what's going to help her win titles, that's fine. Like, if that's what she's more comfortable doing, if that's her personality, then you do what you can to win. This is not an indictment on Sloane's game at all. No. It's just peculiar that that's what came from her in that coaching timeout. (laughs) So Yulia Gerges has kind of been all over the map lately. She obviously had a great run at the end of the year. She's gotten into the top 10 and stayed there. She had a good week this week in New Haven making the semis, but it's hard to know what to expect from her. She could face the winner of Sevastova and Vekic. That first round is very interesting to me. Sevastova beat Maria Sharapova last year at the U.S. Open. Donna Vekic has been on the upswing, making the final in D.C., losing to Svetlana Kuznetsova. We got Svetlina down there, Radwanska, who opens against Tatiana Maria. Folks have the draws. They can look it up. We don't need to read it out verbatim for them. Let's let's tell them what we think will happen. Yeah, I, this is like pulling teeth. I thought we didn't make predictions. This is like pulling teeth. From mm. I'm not saying we should tell them who's going to win, but what's our general feeling? Okay. You know, so they have to code it in like all these other ways of saying, right. tell me your prediction. Well, I think that Sloan makes the semis out of that quarter to face Serena. I have Sloan making the semis to lose to Simona Halep. Oh, see, I'm not I'm not picking who's going to make it to the final. Oh, you're not? No. Okay, so we have the same semifinalists. Yeah. From that half, who are the surprise players there? For me, it's I have Sakari potentially making the quarters, as well as Donna Vekic. Mm-hmm. I would say Ash Barty. Okay. <laughs> Things get a bit more wide open in the bottom half here. There's that that first round that really sticks out is Carolyn Garcia and Joanna Conta, which to me is very hard to call. You know what I'm I feel for Carolyn Garcia right now because she she drew Sabalenka in Cincinnati, was up five three, lost in seven five in the third. Mm-hmm. Then she has to go play Sasnovich, almost loses to her in Connecticut, and now she draws Joe Conta in the first round at the U.S. Open. If you want any better indication of the depth of women's tennis, you'd be hard-pressed to find one with this three-week stretch from Caroline Garcia. Mm -hmm. She ran into both mad Belarusians. Now she's playing an unseeded Joanna Conta, who not so long ago was ranked top 10. She's been a semifinalist at majors. 
The other one that sticks out is like a number 30 seed is Carlos Juarez Navarro. Like as far as number 30 seeds go, that's just not really somebody you want to see in your section. This is somebody who's made many Grand Slam quarterfinals. She's currently in the semis playing Monica Puig in Connecticut. She's had a, I mean, for somebody not winning titles, she's had a great hard court summer. She's somebody who's very accomplished on the hard courts. And so you have Caroline Garcia, who if she does get by Kanto, has to play possibly Monica Puig in the second round, who's now playing Carla on court in Connecticut. And if she wins that match, then maybe has to play Carla in the third round before Maria Sharapova maybe in the fourth round. Mm-hmm. Or Yelena Ostapenko. The person who I see having the nicest draw, we say the good, the bad, the tragic. The mm. good here is Madison Keys. I was just going to say I really that. think Madison has an opportunity teed up to get back to the final. Yeah, I think she has a really good shot. Colleen Van Wey is the seed in her little section there. She has not been playing well recently, really at all this year. Round of 16 maybe has her playing Ann Kerber, whom she just beat in Cincinnati right. in three sets. If Kerber is still on a high from winning Wimbledon, if maybe she hasn't had enough hardcourt matches lately, like that's somebody who could be ripe for the picking. And Keyes just did it. And say, assume Keyes gets through that quarter and she gets to the semifinal. In the, the very last quarter, you've got a whole bunch of people who could could get far. Mm-hmm. And it's complicated even more now because Petra Kvitova, who has been playing well all year, not necessarily so at Grand Slams, she just had to withdraw in Connecticut with a shoulder injury saying to the medic on, on court that she can't really serve because of her shoulder. Mm-hmm. And that's only, what, three, four days out from having to take the court in New York. And this is why, if you're a top 10 player, you don't play New Haven. This is why... This is why we're going to get sued. You see how easily I teed up one of your very favorite topics in tennis? Because Petra lost to Kiki Burdens in Cincinnati, clearly fatigued, totally gassed. Petra was in very good form all week, as you you witnessed. Uh, She was winning winning matches. She was great against Serena. Shock. But then (laughs) she had a couple of three-set matches. It wasn't smooth sailing. Point being, Petra with a three was very much prominent and has been prominent. And in New Haven, she was playing three set matches. Then she had to face Carla and pulled out after the first set. And I'm thinking, I realize that you made a commitment. You like this tournament. There was probably an appearance fee involved. You also made that wonderful viral video for the Connecticut Open. If you need, if you feel obliged to go to Connecticut to take part in those videos, do it. Practice, practice and record. Mm-hmm. You don't gotta be playing these matches, right? When we last year we got the path to totality. <laughs> it was amazing, and then we've gotten some other ridiculous video. This segment one was this about year. the the shot clock. Yes, the thing is, you are Petra Kvitova. Like you're not you're not a twentieth ranked player. You're in the top ten. You have a legit chance at every single tournament you enter. But in the majors this year, she's been really disappointing, despite winning five titles on all these different surfaces. So I I just personally have to wonder why. And Sabalenka, now I totally understand why someone like Sabalenka is playing Connecticut, because she's up and coming. She's not that highly ranked yet. She's building her ranking, and she wants to get reps, right? And she hasn't... 
she hasn't really shown a lot of signs of fatigue, even losing to Simona Halep in Cincinnati. She just didn't really have a lot of answers for Simona's game. So I get that. However, these two women had great momentum. Are they jeopardizing it by playing too much? I think that remains to be seen. And I think it makes this quarter... Say what now? It remains to be seen? What? I'm pretty sure you have your mind made up. No, no, no. But I think it makes this quarter very, very interesting because we got Wozniacki down there as the number two seed. Who's been struggling which I mightily. Think it wouldn't surprise anyone if she went out in, say, the third or fourth round. Kiki Burtons, who just won Cincinnati. You know, how is she going to bounce back mentally from a title she did not expect to win? And then you have these supreme talents in Kvitova and Sabalenka. Then Osaka, Kazatkina. Right. Sasnovic, Bencic. Buzarnescu decided to play, so we don't know what kind of shape she's in, who she can take out here. And listen, Jeannie Bouchard is in that quarter. Oh my lord. And Three she was convincing given... matches in qualifying and has to play Harmony Tan in the first round from France. And after that, she would play the winner of Buzarnescu or Vondrusova. And then, well, fine, maybe Kiki Burton's, but... This is also an opportunity for Jeannie, if she's really feeling it herself. Is. Because we saw what Kiki can do, and we've seen it at the French Open, but she's not a perennial second-week player in majors yet. There's, I don't know, there's really no saying who comes through this section. That said, I have Sabalenka and Burton's The Recency Effect and believing what I've seen with my own eyes, making the quarterfinals with Burton's making the semis to lose to Madison Keys. Mm. I'm predicting either a Keys or Sabalenka finalist from this half. Mm. See, I'm I'm given a little bit of pause by how far Sabalenka went in Cincinnati and then making the final mm. this week. It may be a bit much. Yeah. I don't be. know. But you know, she looks like the type of player who does not give one iota about your expectations. <laughs> She's going to do her and do it full throttle. That is true. A few surprises here. Veras Vonareva and Patty Schneider made it through qualifying, winning all three of their matches mm-hmm. each. That is a blast from the past. Patty Schneider will play Maria Sharapova in the first round. Well, a lot of eyeballs will be tuned to that one. I tweeted just now that 20 years ago in 1998, Patty Schneider beat Steffi Graf in the fourth round of the U.S. Open before going on to lose to Yana Novotno. Uh, that was a, a U.S. Open that I remember vividly. It was the slam right after Yana had won her maiden and only slam. Mm-hmm. And I was rooting real hard for her to win that U.S. Open as well. That match that Schneider won against Graf, it was a night match, and it came as a shock. It, I mean, it wasn't totally shocking because Steffi had been out with injury for most of 1997 and she was still finding her footing again. But it was, it was Steffi Graf. And then here we are 20 years later, and she's making her way through three rounds of qualifying to then play Maria Sharpova in the first round. Like, that is wild. And why I remember that 1998 US Open so vividly, clearly I was rooting for Jana Novotna. She plays Martina Hingis in the semifinals. She had beaten Martina at Wimbledon. And she takes the first set from Martina, ends up losing in three. And then Martina loses in straight sets to Lindsay Davenport in the final. And I firmly believe that Yana would have been a much better challenge for Lindsay in that final. Mm. That, was, that was how I felt at 14 years old. 
Before we go on to the men's draw, let's just highlight some of the first round matches that are going to be ones to watch. Obviously, Garcia Conta. Andrea Petkovic has to play Yelena Ostapenko in the first round. That is unfortunate for the fashion expert of Racket Magazine podcast. Sabalenka has to play Danielle Collins in the first round. Naomi Osaka plays Laura Zygenmund in the first round. Now, I was, I believe, on Althea Gibson court watching Naomi play Zygenmund in Charleston. Mm -hmm. And that was quite entertaining. Sasnovich plays Bencic. Kantavite plays Sinyakova. And poor Sam Stozer, she has to play Wozniacki in the first round. What are the first round matches on that top half? I think that Petra Martic and Lucy Shafajeva is a is an interesting one. Yes, I because agree. Petra Martic has made the fourth round at slams. It seems like forever. Shafajeva is should be the favorite because she's a former runner-up at a slam. But I don't know how to call that one. I think that'll just be fun either way. Azarenka is always someone to watch, regardless of who she's playing. She plays Kuzmova in the first round. Like we said, Vekic and Savastova is unpredictable on the men's side i'm finding it much harder to see a whole lot of landmines in terms of the nitty-gritty of the draw i feel like it's going to be a much more predictable the usual suspects toward the end of the draw especially know that novak's back winning federer's back nadal three of them yeah murray's getting his way back Vavrinka looks good again chillage has been there every single tournament in their absence this is one where maybe you'll have a few tough matches earlier on but the the draw should shake out pretty routinely as far as 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 i see it yeah i think what stuck out at first is that nadal has a pretty easy draw relative to what it could have been talk about the good the bad tragic that's the best well (laughs) i mean you know so we could see sock or edmund in the fourth round there's dominic team uh, Kevin Anderson, Shapovalov could be in the quarterfinals. We know that Rafa handled Kevin Anderson pretty easily in the final last year. That's not to say that it will be easy again, should they play. But a lot of the big landmines are in the other half. Obviously, Djokovic and Federer are both in the bottom half drawn together. In the same quarter. Yeah. Jack Sock, we know, has barely won any matches this year. At this point... He is not even on track to qualify for majors, like if he were to play at this level. Listen, if he were a golfer, he'd be losing his tour card. What? He'd have to go back to Q school at this point. I don't know what that is, but I'm it not even really sure bad. the nationwide tour would have him. Dominic Team, I don't know what the hell's going on with him. He pulled out of Cincinnati with this mysterious viral illness. Mm. The thing is, Dominic is just not winning on hard courts, period. Well, Set that aside, he's ill as well. You'd have to imagine Dominic is not feeling well if he doesn't play (laughs) a tournament. (laughs) He must be on death's door if he's not playing. Shapovalov-Anderson is obviously interesting. Why? Because it's a a great contrast in styles. Mm -hmm. Dennis is the heir apparent to a lot of these guys. He's considered one of the most promising members of the next gen. I think that Kevin Anderson would get through that easily. Oh. But it's it's one to watch. People seem to find Dennis's game electrifying. That's what I've been told. I'm sure I've said it before in the podcast. Let us not say that ever again. 
Now, the person who beat Team last year and totally demoralized him, Juan Martin Del Potro, is now the number three seed. He's leading the second quarter here, has a very manageable draw, I think. Uh, Here is the caveat. So we've got Feliciano Lopez and Fernando Verdasco in the first round. The winner of that could face Andy Murray. I am not convinced that Andy Murray will make it to the third round to face Del Potro. And it pains me to say that, but I'm just not convinced. But even then, second round, Matteo Berrettini has been playing real good tennis the last few months. Yeah. You never know what can happen. Mm -hmm. If Andrew gets through to the third round and he's healthy, that's the caveat here. He lost in Cincinnati, said his body was fine. It was that he didn't trust his mind yet. Mm. And he had won three tough matches, looked good in D.C., so as far as we know, Murray is physically fine. Well, he looked he looked okay in D.C. He was grinding out matches against people he normally would handle. Easily. Sure. I mean, the touch and getting stuff back, that's going to take a little bit of yeah. time. But yeah. I'm, I'm talking about his physical fitness here. If he's okay. physically fit and the hip is fine, then that's the base level most important thing to worry about with him. The results will eventually come. And so if he gets to a third round and has to win... And Delpo has to win three sets against him. That may be less easy than you presume. And then Del Potro has to play potentially Chorich or Tsitsipas in the fourth round. Yeah, that's the third round that I really, really hope happens. Before any number of players in the quarterfinals. Could be Dimitrov, Vavrinka, Raonic, Isner. I, I do not see an easier path for Del Potro as you do, is my point. Okay. Clearly, we have that Stan and Grigor first round, which is a repeat of their Wimbledon first round, which Vorinka won in four sets after losing the first set easily. And this would easily qualify as tragic. This is tragic. I did mention that I'm very, very bad at probability, and I don't know how to figure out the, the likelihood that this matchup would happen in two consecutive majors. And despite people trying to explain it to me, I still don't get it. Give me a number. You said to me, I don't get probability. What do you think would be blah, blah, blah? I'm like, are you? Do you not know me? How long have we been together? Why would I ever right. know how to calculate that? You know, that's the only math test that I have ever failed. And I failed it really, really badly. And then you take it to Twitter. And then you're trying to report back to me as if I've somehow acquired more fucks to give. <laughs> I'm like, what are you doing? Why are we still talking uh-huh. about this? It's called curiosity. It's just tragic. That's the bottom oh. line. That's all we need to know. Mind you don't turn that into a cliche, okay? What? The word tragic. Mm. On that note, Milos Raonic was a set to face Gerald Donaldson. He pulled out, so he'll face Burlock in the first round. But his third round is just not looking good. I, you know, the winner of Dimitrov or Wawrinka could meet him in the third round. But Raonic is resurgent. Literally any one of those guys could be in the semifinal. And so my bold prediction is that whoever wins the first round against Wawrinka, between Wawrinka and Dimitrov, will make the semifinal in that that quarter. See, I have Wawrinka winning and making it to the quarterfinals, Mm. losing to Del Potro. Okay. And so for me, it's Nadal and Del Potro in the semis. Nadal and Del Potro seem to meet each other at every Grand Slam now. That's just their thing. Mm -hmm. And 
to do a little bit of backing up here, we need to talk more about this Chorch Tsitsipas third round because that is beyond, just beyond. I don't know how to finish that sentence. I just know it's beyond, beyond mm-hmm. something. You just know you want to start that sentence. I, I know it needs to be watched. <laughs> I know it needs to be appreciated. I know that something special is happening in that match. Mm. I'm somebody who has been struggling to find, like, who's next, right? To to get a lot of passion about some of these younger players because my favorites are aging and their retirement is is imminent within the next few years. I don't do well with new people. But Borna and Stefanos are two players that I could really see having a, like a long mm. interest in you could following really, their careers. You could really get behind those two. It, right. And to me, they just present something, they present something more interesting than someone like Sasha Zverev, for example, whose game is technically very impressive. Who, what he does, he does extremely well, but it's just not something that, that exhilarates me. Yeah, and these two have personality in spades. Mm-hmm. And that helps. It also helps that I find their games interesting. Exactly. I was thoroughly drawn to and in and by Chorich's game, his actual game, mm-hmm. on Court 10 in Cincinnati. I, it was just so much fun to watch. Yeah. We didn't even mention that Tommy Robredo, who is like 36 or 37, has been through it over these past five or six years qualified and will face Tsitsipas in the first round. That sucks. It does suck. Tragic. That is tragic. Let's move to the men's bottom half here. Marin Cilic is there at the top as the seventh seed. What do you think Cilic's chances are here? Is he a finalist? He is my finalist. I I would agree, actually. Why why are we agreeing on things? You have not seen... We've not seen each other's draws. We haven't. But I think that the way Cilic kind of bossed up against Djokovic for a lot of that match is promising. And I think his his draw is not really that bad. No, and I think Cilic has shown us by now that he is somebody to be reckoned with. It's no longer a surprise if he's there at the end of slams. And he's not really afraid of anybody. Whether or not he'll actually be able to rise to the moment in the moment is another matter, but mm-hmm. him beating a Djokovic or a Federer to get to a final should not shock anybody at this point. Right. He is somebody with... A pedigree. Yeah. And he told us, and he told you all on our last episode, that he's not the kind of person who's going to complain and say, wow, I wish I had been born in a different generation because I could have won more. He's somebody who thinks the top players have made him better. Mm -hmm. Well, you know what? Being born in this generation means he made a lot more money than if he had been born another time. It does. Absolutely. So we've got Golfin, who... Retired, injured against Roger Federer in Cincinnati. Diego Schwartzman could face Nishikori in the third round. I think that Kay is also a serious threat and could take out Sasha Zverev. If Kay and Sasha make it to the fourth round, like Nishikori has been here before, and I, we shall see if the addition of Ivan Lendl to Sasha's team makes an immediate difference. We'll talk about that more mm. later on. To your point, I think you're spot on with Nishikori. I think the cutoff for Nishikori to be a threat anywhere is a fourth round. Okay. And a slam at this point. Like, he can beat anybody mm-hmm. early in these tournaments, but the body just doesn't seem to be able to take him right. further. And can we talk about his Uniqlo kit? Like, his kits have been perfect, mm-hmm. ideal lately. They're amazing. That brown, yellow, 
red outfit that people were mocking widely mm-hmm. on Twitter. I loved it. Like I've, I'm living and loving all of them. I mean, mock it all you want, but Pharrell Williams made all of your favorites a McDonald's uniform last year. Oh my so god! That's all I'm gonna say. Listen, it looked good. Did it though? I liked it. It looked good on like maybe one person. No, I disagree. I liked. I enjoyed it. No, with the visor, it looked like hello, welcome to McDonald's drive-through. May I take your order? And for you, would be a Big Mac with no tomatoes. Big Mac doesn't come with tomatoes, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> like you think I don't know my fast food burgers? <laughs> <laughs> All right, but maybe that that maybe that can be um, branded into uh, merch if we ever do it. What Big Mac don't come with tomatoes, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> the Whopper does. Oh my god! Fourth quarter, Novak Djokovic, Roger Federer on opposite sides. There, this is one of the big stories of the draw. Roger Federer admits that he did not play well against Novak Djokovic in that final in Cincinnati. We talked about it. Roger was a little bit rusty. His serve was on point for most of the tournament. His stats were amazing. He didn't play badly against Novak, but he didn't just he just didn't play like Roger. Yeah, I don't think we gave Novak enough credit for that win. To be fair, after that you, match. Oh, oh, and we. I mean, I don't think we gave Roger enough credit either. Oh, don't you think? Possibly. I mean, we probably said he was just really bad. I'm not really that torn up about it, to be honest. <laughs> we had a lot going on. We did. Whatever we said, please forgive, because we were half asleep. Federer potentially plays Kyrgios in the third round. Normally, given what we've seen from Kyrgios in the last few weeks, wouldn't necessarily be that much of a, uh, a threat for Federer. But we know, we've been knowing, that Nick lives to fuck up somebody's life, especially the big four. Yes, even if Nick is not feeling 100% physically, even if he's at 50%, he is going to be extra motivated to face one of these goats. He may actually stretch before that match. <laughs> I would say that Fabio Fonini and Yun Chung have a wonderful opportunity to make the fourth round here. I don't think they'll make it any further. I would go with Fonini. Chung hasn't really been impressing much yeah. in the last few months. Mm-hmm. Carino Busta has a good chance to get back to the fourth round. He had that deep run last year. Mm-hmm. The He's names in. in the fourth round that I have here are all familiar names. Chilic against Cecchinato. I think he has a very good chance to have Grand Slam success again this year mm. with Goffa's injury situation up in the air. Francis Tiafo has a good chance to yes. get to the third round. I'm glad that you called out that first round because I think that is a winnable match against Adrian Manorino. He's had a lot of tough first round matches in slams and he, he actually gets a chance to win a few matches and get some coin. Mm-hmm. Diego Schwartzman, I would like to think, he's somebody who could get to the quarterfinals. There's just so many names there. Yeah. Some first rounds you want to call out here? I sure. would say... So what do you have here? You have Chilich oh. over who then? Uh, well, I didn't really get that far. Well, Probably I... Chilich over Djokovic. Well, that's what I have as well. Mm-hmm. So whoopty fucking do. <laughs> I, the first one matches, look out for Novak Djokovic against Marton Fuksovic. Because, like I said on the last episode, Fuksovic is somebody who is a lot of fun to watch. Yeah. And I'm not into him like that like y'all are. Hey, what about Marcos Bagdadis and Mikhail Yuzhny? Seems like a different era. Yuzhny has announced that he will be retiring. Marcos Bagdadis, it seems like he pops up and has a good result every once in a while. 
I think he's always exciting to watch, for me at least. I've always been a big fan. Mackie McDonald and Robin Haza in the first round. Haza, who took out Sasha Zverev in Cincinnati recently. Mackie, who is putting together a solid year on the Pro Tour after being a college player. Fonini plays Michael Moe in the first round. Mm-hmm. Moe has slotted right into where Francis was for much of the last year and a half in Grand Slams, getting right. that unfortunate first round match. Fonini, to his credit, has been very consistent this year, and it's reflected in his ranking. He's seated 14 here. He's very close to a career high, if not having already achieved it. Somebody can fact check me on that. Mm-hmm. But he seems to have settled into playing, winning some money, going home, spending some time with Flavia and the boy, and coming <laughs> back out again. Some first-round matches to watch on the top half. Rafael Nadal and old foe David Ferrer, who sadly I don't think that Ferrer is is really doing much of anything these days. I think the best case scenario for him is probably to win a few games per set against Rafa. Jack Sock and Guido Andreozzi. Uh, Jack Sock versus anyone these days is an upset alert. Listen, Jack Sock at the same time has a great opportunity to win some matches finally this year. Those first couple matches are very winnable for yeah. him. And if he chooses not well, to win them, be. if he doesn't win them, that will be the biggest exclamation mm. point on a dud of a season. Uh, we're talking about one of the best doubles players in the world. Mm-hmm. Possibly the best. I just, I don't, I don't understand. Misha Zver plays Taylor Fritz. And uh, Ryan Harrison plays Kevin Anderson. Ranking-wise, that's one of the most unfortunate first-round matchups for one of the top seeds. Mm-hmm. But I feel that Harrison has been on kind of a downturn since that very ugly dust-up with Donald Young earlier in the year. Yes, but he's won a few matches lately. Mm. And then, of course, the last one, the last and biggest one, Stan playing Grigor again. Right. Three last bits of business before we finish the episode with our audio from David Taylor and Kamal Mari. See, what had happened was, this is something that we weren't able to cover while we're in Cincinnati. It happened while we're in Cincinnati. But we had other business to attend to. Mm-hmm. The Tennis Integrity Unit is out here a while Peng Shui was banned for six months. Three months of those are suspended and fined $10,000. Half of that is suspended for using coercion and, quote, offering the possibility of financial reward in return for her main draw partner agreeing to withdraw from the women's doubles at 2017 Wimbledon. Now, this prompted folks to be speculating, who was the snitch? <laughs> who is the person out here running their mouth and throwing Peng Shui under the bus? Mm-hmm. Was it a coach? Was it a bystander? Was it somebody in the hallway? And you know what? The snitch raised her hand and says, yes, it is me. It is she. It is Alison Van Eitvang. <laughs> and on social media, she tells us, This is what happened during the 2017 qualifications at Wimbledon. My former coach, Elaine DeVos, and me were stalked day and night. Stalked. They were stalked. Stalked day and night. Breakfast and and dinner. (laughs) By by Shui Pong, (laughs) who wanted me to withdraw from doubles. She wants to play with Mirza after the deadline had already passed. My former coach went to the integrity... And they investigated this case with the utmost discretion. Clearly, because nobody knew about it. Mm -hmm. Based on the evidence, it was the commission's decision to to suspend her. 
Since I was a little girl, tennis has been everything for me. Therefore, I want this sport to be and stay clean in all his ways. Allison. Wow, girl. His ways. Whose ways? No. It's, well, it was obviously a translation error. A, you know, a gender pronoun thing. I saw folks joking and quipping that it was, you know, uh, Jesus on high, his, capital H. Oh, my H. God. <laughs> <laughs> I was so shocked that she came out so bluntly and said, yes, it was I who reported Shui Peng. She done pissed me off at Wimbledon, tried to pay me to not play. Like, listen, I'm already openly gay on this WTA tour. I don't need nothing else. <laughs> right. I mean, I don't think this would have been an issue had money not come into the equation, right? If Peng sort of pressured Allison not to play and said, listen, I want to play with Sanya. I know it's after the cutoff. Drop out, bitch. It would have been different. But there was some sort of financial coercion involved. and Because at first it's like, what's the big deal? Right. And you, you imagine that this stuff must happen on the double circuit, right? This stuff probably happens more than you'd like to think. Yeah. Is it a matter of just hurt feelings? Well, she doesn't want to play with me anymore. Mm-hmm. It, it takes a little bit of deeper looking to figure out what exactly is the issue at play here. Right. And as you said, it's the money. And I mean, yeah, sure. I'd like to play with Sani Mirza too. But you didn't enter with Sani Mirza. We got word yesterday that after weeks, maybe even months of speculation of Lendl dropping in and out of, of the Zverev camp, he's officially joining Sasha Zverev's team. Mm-hmm. With the explicit purpose to teach Sasha how to win majors. This is what Ivan Lendl is doing these days. I mean, he is somebody who's been there. He knows how to do it. A lot of people credit him with Andy Murray's success at majors, being able to break through. There's no telling whether or not that's the case, but their partnership seemed to work well. And if you are somebody like Zverev, whose major knock on his career right now, albeit a very young career still, is that he's unable to get deep into Grand Slams, this is exactly the type of pairing that would make sense for him. Mm-hmm. Now, the super coach may not work for everyone. Obviously, it worked for Novak and Boris until it flamed out spectacularly. Uh, Lendl has close ties with the Zverev family, apparently, so that may help. Zverev obviously needs somebody who, <laughs> as he say, respects his family. But hes they're all very close, and he's going to need somebody who's kind of in on it. And to be, to be frank, it might be beneficial to have somebody who is willing to check a bitch when a bitch needs well, to be yes. checked. I think that's key, coaching someone like Sasha. Is that you need, uh, you can't have all yes men in the camp. Now, onto something that is sure to rile folks. It's riled us. Mm. Mr. Bernard Giudicelli. He is the president of the French Federation of Tennis. He's been in the news recently because he was convicted of defamation, mm-hmm. which is a civil offense in the UK. He, he owns a bakery that specializes in fresh bullshit. <laughs> There was a lot of pressure to remove him from the board of the International Tennis Federation and no less than David Haggerty introduced introduced an amendment to keep him on the board. A last minute stay of execution. Exactly. With the explicit or implicit, implicit, implicit reason being so that he can vote in favor of... The Davis Cup changes. Yes. And the French Federation, with their 12 votes, indeed voted in favor of the ITF's proposal for the new Davis Cup. 
Now, there's a lot to talk about there. We're going to leave that for a later episode when we really have the time to go into it in depth. What he said most recently was a comment about Serena Williams' catsuit, which you would be forgiven for thinking that was three to four months in the past. Because it was. Uh, exactly. The Wakanda-inspired, or vice versa, catsuit that Serena wore at Roland Garros this year, which she noted at the time it would, there was a medical reason for her wearing this full-body catsuit. The compression element of it was a health issue. Yes. Like it was meant to maintain and enhance her health. Mr. Giudicelli says, I believe we have sometimes gone too far. Serena's outfit this year, for example, would no longer be accepted. And then here comes the kicker. You have to respect the game and the place. Yes. Now, at the time, we saw many WTA players speculating openly on Twitter as to whether this outfit was within the rules. Because there are certain... We don't know exactly what the rules are. There seems to be some vagaries. Like, a lot of the players don't even know themselves, Mm -hmm. right? So they were like, well, is this allowed? I don't know. Well, like, one time I wanted to wear this and I couldn't wear this. How come she can wear this? Right. So, like, we're coming at this from a perspective of, well, this this is the rule... And we were a little bit lax this year with the rule, but we're going to enforce the rule. But then to now cloak it under, you have to respect the game and the place, get the fuck out of here with that nonsense. Mm -hmm. Especially since your moralizing is coming from this bastard of tennis. (laughs) I would say that this is coming from the absolute moral low ground, if that's a thing. The the tennis integrity unit is something that has sort of riled us in the past because it doesn't seem to take aim at those people who are most in need of integrity, the people who make decisions in tennis. Mm-hmm. And this is why Alison Van Eitbank is out here putting her hand up and saying, listen, I want to clear my name right. because the hammer will come down hardest on her. Right. Meanwhile, somebody like Judicelli can do whatever he wants, but to preserve these boardroom backdoor dealings that these men in suits need Mm -hmm. to make in tennis they can say and do whatever they want without punishment right there there's a few things going on here first of all this is something that happened months ago when serena debuted the outfit it was the topic of conversation it really dominated the news cycle for that week i think it underlines the fact that the black female body is one of the cultural battlegrounds of the Western world. It is one of the most controversial, the most inflammatory cultural signifiers we have. And the crazy thing is this is a human body. Mm -hmm. The black female body makes people angry. It's eroticized. It's feared. It is lusted for. It is a public sphere on which we have debates. And these are things It's a that, human body. Yeah, and these are things that people aren't always aware of, their thoughts and feelings about the black female body. And so when it's spoken about in ways that are problematic, and then it's it's met with some pushback, some explanation as to why historically and socially this is problematic for you to say and do these things, it's like, well, that wasn't my intent. Mm-hmm. That That's not what this is. But yet time and time again, we see this site of contestation being Serena's body in women's tennis specifically and in society writ large. Right. The way that she uses her body, the fact that she is muscular and curvaceous, 
is seems to be evidence that she uses drugs, that she has a natural advantage over other women, thinner, whiter women than she, because of the way she looks. We see it with Beyonce when she says, you know, you that bitch when you cause all that conversation. Part of that is centered in Beyonce's curvaceous, non-white body. It scares people, it excites them, it, it is something that we feel at liberty to debate about, as if it's ours. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, white men are out here lusting after that body. Mm -hmm. White women want to have that body. The Kardashians are out here spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to look like that body. Mm -hmm. it's, it's such a clusterfuck. All these confusing, random, moving parts. And then the other thing is that a few people, some of these hashtag resistance people, even Roxanne Gay today, suggested that Serena should boycott Roland Garros because of what Judicelli said. And I'm sitting here getting mad. On the one hand, I'm glad that Serena Williams has that cultural cachet, that people want to defend her, because that's where it's coming from initially, the motivation to stick up for Serena. But the other side of that coin is, what? Do you know? First of all, do you know Serena? Do you know anything about tennis? And how dare you suggest that she surrender this opportunity to win a title? And also, part of being Serena and having her stature is now especially after she's embraced her role and her position in tennis and society, is having people look to her to set the tone for how things should be dealt with, right? And so right. folks are now looking to her to not only be the voice for working women, to be the voice for black athletes, to be the voice for women, but to then push back against Judicelli and take a stand, right? Mm -hmm. Why should she be forfeit, forfeiting $4 million for winning the tournament uh, at potentially 24th, 25th Grand Slam title at that point? She could potentially tie Steffi Graf with having four titles at every Grand Slam mm -hmm. event. She should compromise her legacy to make a point about Bernard Giudicelli. Like, How about we hold him and all the other men who step a foot wrong repeatedly, right. hold them to a standard that's not the bare minimum? I mean, did she not do enough when she boycotted Indian Wells for 13, 14 years? And this is the thing too, like if Serena were to take that kind of drastic stance every time some white dude said something really fucked up, what? would she ever be on the tennis court? But no, exactly. This is what annoys me when people who don't follow her career in depth make comments like this. Why is the burden on her mm -hmm. to, to give that up? Maybe she loves playing Paris. I mean, she speaks French to the crowd. Like, she... This is obviously a special place to her. Paris, Rome, her two favorite cities outside of the U.S. Right. She has said many times before that she is a tennis player. She feels that that's her role. She doesn't feel like a cultural tour de force, right? Like, her role is not influencer. First and foremost, she's a player. She loves to play tennis. That's why she's still putting in all this work when she could easily retire. I'm just saying, this is what she does. Let her do what she does. She's in New York right now. She's trying to get prepared for another Grand Slam tournament. Just let it be. One thing I forgot to mention when we were talking about the women's draw is this women's draw the least wide open since the 2017 Australian Open. This is my, my position. 
over the past few majors, we've been talking over and over and over about how the women's side is so wide open. And in this tournament, I feel that there are some clear favorites. I have an answer to that question. Hmm. I think we are two years in now, and I think you can put the starting point at Serena, like you said, the 2017 mm. Australian Open. And the reason for that is because of Serena's absence. And in that time, we've seen a lot of women given the opportunity to step up. Yeah. And we've remarked over the last two years how so many women have stepped up. Mm -hmm. And part of that is we've kind of let go of this idea that having the top eight seeds make the quarterfinals means that the draw was worthwhile. Because right. the women's tour is so deep right now that somebody like Sabalenka making the quarterfinals would not be a reflection of a poor section of the draw. You know, we literally have Carlos Suarez Navarro, a repeated a threat to make the quarterfinals at Daimler every slam, ranked seated number 30. And that's an improvement. Yeah. And so it's. I think that's what it is. It's really just a function of how deep women's tennis is right now. Mm. In that, it's also had the effect now of changing our minds and the way we view and project or fuckery onto <laughs> the draws and women's tennis. Okay. I, I take all that. And you and I both assert that a lot of women who have won majors in the past two years have not backed into it, that they have fought and earned it. But I do think that some players are coming to the top now. I think, for me, the clear favorites are Simona and Sloane, mm -hmm. with Serena being a third favorite. That's just my opinion. So the draw notwithstanding, not looking at the draw, I think that Simona and Sloane are the players to beat at really any hard or clay court major. Sure. No, I, I mean, I could be proven totally off base as this tournament progresses, but I think it's been a while that we haven't had like 15 favorites. At this US Open, I don't feel like there's there's more than 10 favorites, you know? Oh, so, so what you're saying is we're looking at it from totally different perspectives. I guess so, yeah. Because I don't see it as a Simona oh. Sloan and they're cut above everybody else. I think okay. it wouldn't be a surprise at all if they were to win. And I also think it's one of the the slams in recent memory where the the players leading in the favorites are 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 set up nicely to to win again quickly after they've won before mm. so like in the past say Muguruza hasn't been able to defend or follow up winning Wimbledon with a good US Open or whatever right. like the the women say for example Wozniacki in Australia Sloan at the US Open like uh this year we would not be surprised to see Simona or Angie win again yeah. in New York. Mm -hmm. With that, let's set up our coaching audio. So we had the opportunity to sit down with David Taylor one-on-one. -on -one. David Taylor is the coach of Madison Keys, but in the past he's also coached Elena Ostapenko, Sam Stozer for many years. He got his start as the hitting partner for Martina Hingis, coach Alicia Malik, he is really one of the most sought-after coaches in women's tennis. We also got to ask some questions to Kamal Murray, who is the coach of Sloane Stevens. So it's kind of some nice symmetry for the 2017 U.S. Open. We were able to speak with the two finalists' coaches. 
David Taylor wasn't with Madison last year, obviously. It's not Correct. like they coached them last year. Kamau mm-hmm. did. Kamau did. But And Madison and Sloan are on the opposite sides of the draw and could potentially meet in the final. Not to say that that's extremely likely, but it, it could happen again. Moving forward, looking at American women's tennis in the future, this is where we are. Talking to David Taylor and Kamau Murray, who have such different approaches, such different personalities, was fascinating for us as tennis fans and i hope it is for you let's listen to our talk with david taylor first so we're just going to play these two interviews back to back and then on the other side we'll bid you farewell thanks for taking time to talk okay yeah no problem uh you've worked with such a wide range of players from martina hingis to alicia malik sam stozer now madison keys part of that is working with a whole range of personalities Mm. Uh, you talked previously about how you like working with players with the big serve, big forehand, but then you have to take into account the range of personalities as well. How does that factor yeah, into Yeah, the personality, coaching? it's an interesting one because I think, like for example, Sam, you had a, she had a really big game, but not, she wasn't an aggressive person. But, but uh, So the challenge with that personality is trying to make her an aggressive person when she played two hours of tennis a day. But off the court, she wasn't aggressive at all. Like she you know, going to a restaurant, she'd never be demanding or, you know, she just wasn't, it didn't match her tennis. Uh-huh. I think uh, other aggressive players that match the tennis, like Ostapenko I coached, the aggressiveness <laughs> off the court was the same as it on the court. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it, that was very easy for her to play that style of tennis, whereas someone like Samuel was very big challenges from a coach to get her to play. Um, I think someone like Madison who, growing up, She's just been so good all along her pathway. You know, she's she's just such an amazing hitter of the ball. Uh, but she's very hard on herself. So now the challenge is trying to let her forget, you know, be a little bit easier on yourself and you're allowed to make mistakes. Uh, she just wants to do everything perfectly all the time. And, and yeah, per- that is coaching, personality, dealing. People don't put as, or understand that side of it as much, but that is actually is everything in, in trying to, to match a personality to the play style. That, that's actually everything at that level of coaching, yeah. And do you, I, I know you mentioned earlier that you are trying to adapt kind of to each player's needs and personalities. Do you, is there a kind of a specific attitude you want to get from your players? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the ultimate is to, to be really just about the tennis like you know so you're on the court you're doing this if you make a mistake you can quickly analyze it go on to the next thing and and I think the best players in the world do that easier than let's say Fognini he has trouble doing that you know but he's brilliant you know when he when he's on he's on someone like Rafa does that very easily you know Um, or Roger is the best actually at that I think He's a very emotional guy, but you don't see that a lot until the end of a match. I mean, he'll break down in tears, but literally, you know, two, ten minutes ago, he was, he was in the zone. So the, that emotional control is, is absolutely fantastic. Halep has gotten so much better at that. I was talking to Darren Cahill, congratulating on how to break through at the French, and he said it took him two years to get to the point where she developed that discipline emotionally. So it's, it's, it's everything, and you need, you know, for those couple of hours a day to be, you know, so in the zone and not being predictive thinking, not being negative in your reactions. It's very, very high level of concentration that's very hard to attain. Do you now use Simona as the standard for Madison now? Because for years, 
a, a lot of the critique of Simona was not being able to troubleshoot those moments yeah. in the big matches, and she was able to do that big time in the French. Yeah, Open. look, I think also someone like Simona got a hard rap because she, come on, she was one in the world. She obviously did it so often, but she just yeah, she did not, she didn't do it maybe at the highest, like say against Ostapenko mm. and things like that in the final. But the fact she's been able to do that now on the biggest stage in the biggest tournament. It's incredible progress in that area. So yes, players like that. I mean, I'll use her as an example among others that have that have gotten good in that area. Djokovic would tend to find ways, not, not excuses, but there would always be reasons sometimes, you know. Or he happened to be living. He, he publicly said, I'm, "I'm so unlucky to be in this area with you know Nadal and Roger." But geez, he, he dealt with it, came back, and then dominated those yeah. guys. So mm-hmm. I, I think uh, there, there's there's way there's a lot of success stories in that emotional management and, and yeah, I, I tend to use all those ones. But you've got to be careful because often you use Roger and Rafa a lot, maybe even Serena now, come on. <laughs> you know, almost like they're not like me. But, but I just think they're such good examples, you know, and, but I tend to use them too often, yeah. With starting a relationship with a, a new player now, and bringing all this experience from all the other players. Are there things from previous relationships, working relationships that you won't share? Oh yeah, no, I'm pretty careful like, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, I'm careful like that because it's a small world. So you have to, or you use, you don't use names. So you have to use your experience. That's how you grow as a coach. But I'm pretty careful. I tend to give more information on an ex-player that's not playing anymore. I think that's fair. Um, And I never get into personal things, obviously it's just tennis. But, but uh, I, I'll tend to use someone who's retired, J- just from my own integrity, yeah. And let's say it's someone like, Madison's going to play Ostapenko next. You, you have the insight, obviously, in the things oh, that yeah, will Oh, yeah, you've got to use that, her. yeah. So you're okay using Oh, 100%. That. Attack the, uh, yeah, yes. I mean, that's... <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, no, no problem. Yeah, yeah. Right. Sure. I mean, yeah, that's, that's... Yeah, my focus is Madison winning matches, full stop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. Finally, one of the things that I think a lot of folks are interested in find, finding out from coaches is what a what what is your official working I don't want to say contract, but like when you set up that relationship with the player. Um, well, I mean, well, there's different negotiation that's yeah. involved. You know, oh, well, I mean, it's like any job, I, I suppose. But it, there's, I guess, the differences in the jobs I've had is some are very heavily weighted to performance, some you know, some. Are, yeah, there's all different things, but at the top level, which we're at, I think they're all pretty much bigger on performance. You know, you, you, the coach is going to get a lot more reward at the real top end of Grand Slams and things like that. Mm. So the pay structure is going to represent the same pay structure as they're getting mm-hmm. as the player. I think whereas not as high level in a development, the, the coaching jobs I've had years ago, that doesn't really reflect you know, you're really not worried about bonuses and things like mm. that. So there's, you're worried about development. So the pay structure is more heavily... There's a, the base salary can even be higher for those jobs, but there's not as much top end, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Is there... It's not just about financials, but is there stuff in the contract that either you or the player and say, well, this is in the contract, this is what I uh, want, it's stipulated. Yeah, I haven't had... Like, how much are you both aware of? The contract, no, like not, what well, you signed on together. I can to honestly do. say, for me, it's I've, I've often worked jobs. Sam, I didn't even have a signed contract okay. for seven years. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so I think because me, once it ends, it ends, and there's no use saying, well, that's in the contract because if the personal relationship is deteriorated, it's finished. 
whether it's in the contract, it doesn't matter. Like, like it's done, it's done. And so, I, yeah, I know what you're trying to say, but for me, the contracts, that's more or less just to agree on. And then it's really, if, if things break down, it breaks down. It's not, you're gonna hold them, you promised you'd practice this hours, or you, <laughs> forget that. Like, cause it, well, that means you don't have a good relationship anyway, it won't work. It's a very personal relationship. And it's hard, it's hard from a coach to suddenly come in and get this really good relationship. Some are easier than others. Um, and I think it's hard for the player to suddenly have someone, and tennis is so intense with the coach and the player. Although the teams have gotten bigger over the years. I mean, when I traveled with Alicia, it was alone, you know, pretty much. I mean, maybe 90% of it was alone. Now there's always other people around. But there's good things about that. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, but yeah, holding people for promises, of, you don't see that so often, no. Okay. Yeah. It's good. <laughs> Thank you very much. Okay. So obviously that was a great week, first loan in Montreal. After the initial disappointment of the loss, uh, how do you think her, her mindset is going into the rest of the summer? Um, it's an interesting <laughs> question. I think she um, it's fine. I mean, you know, Sloan never, never won that overreacts to a loss. So I think that the reaction you saw is pretty positive from a coaching standpoint because it showed probably more disappointment than usual. Um, but I mean, in the car, she was like, eh, I'm not quite sure what I did wrong. So I thought it was, I think she knows she's a lot closer and at least probably one or two sort of inches away from turning that match around, which we all watched the match and we all know that it was, could have gone the other way very easily. Yeah. So um, I think she's encouraged by it. I think she's happy with where she is um, and she's building momentum. And I think that we're on the right track. She's communicating. She wasn't beyond the tears you saw on TV after that. It was over. Right? Uh, it was back to normal song. Were you surprised that she was so vulnerable in that moment? Or you don't, I mean, we don't see that a lot from her. No, I think when a player, you know, I think there was times in that match where we all have in the past seen her just say, you know, it's good effort, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that the fact that she didn't, so like five, two and a third, she could be said, you know, it was good, it wasn't my day. The first time she made that light save all day, and she made it in five, two, love, love. Um, so I think that she was really disappointed because there were times where she could have backed off and she could have just thrown in the towel and she didn't and still come up short. So I think that was the appropriate response. Um, and you know, I wanted it for her as someone that's watched her play every single single match for three years. Uh, I think that was one where I could see like, oh no, she she kind of wants this. And then even I started thinking, okay, how can I help her get it right? So now I want it for you because this one I clearly see you want. Right? There are some others where it's like, eh, you know. <laughs> but this one she definitely wanted, and so it was. I didn't, know, I didn't want to cry for this young man, but I, I wanted to cry for her because I do. I think from the effort level, from the intensity level, and from the concentration level, you know, it was probably top. Historically, Sloan has been a little bit blasé sometimes with some of the losses, like you said. Uh, throughout the time that you've worked with her, you said blasé. <laughs> my dad's a lawyer, so everything you say, I hear. <laughs> Just so you know, my dad's a judge now, so you know he's lawyer for 30 years so every word I hear <laughs> she might say it's okay yeah. that that she lost the match is that something that over the time that you've worked with her that's been a, of concern to you like is that something that you wanted 
her over that time to show, show more sadness or emotion of losing, or do you just take it as part of her personality and who she is, and why she can have success? I think her reaction to a loss really should depend on what happened prior to the loss. And so sometimes when there's not a lot of drama or overreaction to a loss, it's because we know there were some things we could have did differently prior to. And so one of the reasons why Sloan has been so stable is because she is very honest and realistic. If we weren't ready to play for whatever reason, if we lose, we're not going to cry. We're not going to fire our coach. We're not going to do all these things because, you know, losses don't just happen, right? So I think that the blase, as you said, um, sort of energy could be just because, you know, this tournament, based on what happened prior to, I, I expected to get two rounds, and that was a great build-up for me, right? So I don't, I think it's she's very realistic about where she is and what needs to happen in order for her to hold the big trophy. So I don't know that it's a negative thing. I also think that, you know, in tennis, you can do everything right and still lose a match, right? And so I think that knowing that helps you deal with a loss, right? And I think at the end of the day, I mean, look, these kids get to travel the world, stay in nice hotels, um, you know, make a lot of money. And I know we would love for them to want to kill themselves for every match. But I think given where they are and where they come from, I think they do pretty good. Right? And I think that perspective on it makes it healthy. You know what I mean? Um, I think it's a little bit unhealthy for every single loss to be in the world, which is why you see a whole lot of coach changing and training changing and other the racket changing, all that kind of stuff. Right? And I think that's the overreaction that we're used to seeing in the sport versus the honest assessment of what happened and why it happened. And I think Sloan is, as you all know, either she's all in off, she's shut down, or she's going to be very honest. And I think you know our relationship is very honest. Right? If, if I told you to do something wrong, there's been two matches in three, and I said, you know what, my bad. I got that one wrong, right? But I, I think that the honesty is why you see, you know, a very relaxed reaction to losses. Hope you enjoyed listening to David Taylor and Kamal Murray. Hope you found it as insightful as we did. That was one of the absolute best parts of being in press in Cincinnati, this new initiative from the WTA to make some of their top coaches available. They seem to relish the chance to talk. Yes. <laughs> uh, Darren Cahill walked into the press room and you could see his nameplate by the by the podium. And he's like, wow, it's been a while since I've had one of those. <laughs> you know, they, they seem to enjoy the spotlight a little bit, you know, mm. because these are people who are often forgotten. I think getting any kind of insight into Sloan Stevens' brain is worthwhile and very intriguing. Because what she puts out there for the press, she is very clipped. She is very cautious with the press and looking into her partnership with Kamau Murray. I think he gave us a lot. I think he revealed some things that maybe Sloan wouldn't want him to talk about. Perhaps, but now you have it. <laughs> Thanks for listening. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. Thanks again to Tom Humberstone for partnering with us to redesign the body serve. Be sure to check out those images on Instagram, Twitter, anywhere we are in social media. You can find the new stuff and check him out at Tom Humberstone on Twitter. 
check out thebodyserve.com because we are updating that frequently. We've been writing a bit more, well, a lot more. I have been experimenting with Instagram stories. Mm -hmm. So if you do see one, it's from me. <laughs> this is James, by the way. It's from me. One J, one S. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. We will catch you uh, sometime later in the week. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.